Hi, if I haven't met you, my name's Kyle. Um, I'm one of the leaders here, and most weeks I get the privilege of opening up the Bible and then talking about it, which, by the way, is a really weird job. Um, One, because you come to the scriptures and we've been trained in some sense, like passively and actively to think this thing called the Bible is this uh, place of personal devotion between me and the Lord and increasingly so in workspaces or even like amongst our friends, uh, we're encouraged to retreat from public spaces of discourse around this. We're encouraged to retreat, just kind of creep back with our allegiance to Jesus. And so this is a space, I don't know if you know this, but by showing up into this space with your body, so that's one thing, then you actually get to show up like with your mind and your heart and ask the spirit to like work on you. Um, But to show up here physically is this movement of counterformation. So I just, like, it may sound odd to hear me say um, that I honor you for doing that. Uh, it is no small thing to actually get your body to where you're hopeful to do. And, and, and by that, I just mean it's, it's one thing to want to do a thing. It's another thing to do that thing. And then it's an altogether different thing to want to do the thing that you're actually doing. And so this is a movement toward that where we're asking the Spirit to do that work in us. And so uh, one of the most active ways that we do that as a community is in prayer. Um, so this is like a, a shameless plug. At 9.20, I know, I know 9.20 can seem daunting on a Sunday morning. Uh, our church culture has historically been one where we say 10 o'clock and people mean, you mean 10.15, right? Like, uh, and there's no shade or anything being thrown right there. Was there? Gosh. Maybe, no, no, just a little, just a little, I guess I've been in Iowa for too long. The passive aggressive is coming out. No, um, at 9.20, we have this little uh, prayer meeting and whoever is there, we're, we're just gonna, we gather to simply invite the spirit to do a work in the heart of like us who are there and the people who are here. And then this, throughout this space, throughout the week, um, we have this idea that we can actually be the love and joy and peace of Jesus to those who are with us. So that's what we're praying into. So I just invite you into that space. Um, and it's, it's fitting because here we find ourselves in the midst of this prayer series of what we'll be in here through the fall into winter. And so in keeping with prayer, um, I ask you a question. Have any of you ever read the letter from seat 29E? You just did. Yeah. Okay. It's on the internet. So that's cheating, Brian. Uh, Okay. So yes, you did read it. Yes. Okay. It's not cheating, I guess. So if you've, this is from like um, back in 2005. So the chances that you're, I'm really glad that some of you are like seat 29E. Enjoy this with me. You don't have to read it along with me. Just enjoy. This is a, a letter. I think it's a passenger from Sweden going to Houston. Dear Continental Airlines, I am disgusted as I write this note to you about the miserable experience I'm having sitting in seat 29E on one of your aircrafts. As you may know, this seat is situated directly across from the lavatory. If you don't know what a lavatory is, it's a bathroom. So it's directly across from the lavatory, so close that I can reach out my left arm and touch the door. All my senses are being tortured simultaneously. It's difficult to say what the worst part about sitting in 29E really is. Is it the stench of the sanitation fluid that is blown all over my body every 60 seconds when the door opens? Is it the whoosh 
of the constant flushing? Or is it the passenger's butts, note the edit, uh, that seem to fit into my personal space like a pornographic jigsaw puzzle? I, I constructed a stink shield by shoving one end of a blanket into the overhead compartment, which effective, or while effective in blocking at least some of the smell and offering a small bit of privacy, the butt on my body factor has increased as without my evil glare, passengers feel free to lean up against what they think is some kind of blanketed wall. The next butt that touches my shoulder will be the last. It gets better. I'm picturing a boardroom full of executives giving props to the young promising engineer that figured out how to squeeze an additional row of seats onto this plane by putting them next to the laboratory and then note the illustration. I would like to flush his head in the toilet that I am close enough to touch and taste from my seat. Putting a seat here was a very bad idea. I just heard a man groan in there. This sucks. Depiction of man's butt in my face. Worse yet, I've paid over $400 for the honor of sitting in this seat. Does your company give refunds? I'd like to go back where I came from and start over. A seat 29E could only be worse if it were located inside the bathroom. I wonder if my clothing will retain the sanitizing odor. What about my hair? I feel like I'm bathing in a toilet bowl of blue liquid and there is no man in a little boat to save me. I'm filled with a deep hatred for your plane designer and a general dis-ease that may last for hours. We are finally descending and soon I will be able to tear down the stink shield, but the scars will remain. I suggest that you initiate immediate removal of this seat from all your crafts. Just remove it and leave the smoldering brown hole empty. A good place for sturdy, non-absorbing luggage maybe, but not human cargo. The letter from seat 2098. You have not lived until you have read the seat, the letter from seat 2098. Now, uh, you may be wondering what in the world this rant has to do with prayer because remember, that's what we're doing here. We're actually working through not just prayer in general, but the prayers of Jesus. So what does this rant have to do with uh, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and his prayers? Well, apart from the satirical tone of this letter, which I found to be quite funny, um, and a couple of you did at least, uh, you, can, you can just go on the internet and read it. It's, it's worth reading um, a couple times. But apart from the satirical tone... Uh, what does this have to teach us about prayer? Uh, like, to be clear, I'm not making a sales pitch for us to, like, complain to God, although that is accessible. You see it, like, throughout the scriptures. We have full permission to vent our frustration and our angst and our anger, even our, our, our like, just general discontentedness. And maybe this sounds really odd if your dominant image of prayer is one of request. Like you think of prayer and then you go into request mode. And so I, I really don't know, I don't pretend to know what images come into your mind when you think about prayer. Maybe it's um, like little prayer hand emojis. Maybe it's this image or a posture with your body. It's somebody who's kneeling down at an altar or it's somebody who's like, it's a, a picture of somebody praying through a rosary or something like that. I don't, I don't know what the image is that comes to your mind when you think about prayer. 
my guess is, is that prayer is far from this letter from seat 29E. And it's far from somebody with their fist in the air, shaking their fist at God. But what if prayer is and can be a form of like peaceful protest? What if that was a place where we could actually be and, and not just be what we think we ought to be with God, but be with God as we actually are? And we touched a bit on this last week, and I think it's worth naming again. To pray is to be human. And so if you're human, then prayer is accessible. If, if you've ever sought out love or, my goodness, just general affirmation or guidance or care or intimacy, you even hear people who are atheists who in their most dire, like they reject all gods, not just the God of the Bible, but all gods, they will in moments of distress call out to who? To God. There's something about being human that wires us up for prayer, for something bigger than ourselves. And as followers of Jesus, we actually get to move beyond some bigger, higher power to the person, the God of Israel revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. Like we get to engage in not just something that's personal, but something that is interpersonal. And I, I draw this out because we're not sending letters off to like customer service or the HR department in the heavens in the, in the vein of 29E because the Christian actually trusts that, that God, the God who's revealed in Jesus of Nazareth is, is present to us in the spirit. And this is important to draw all this out because this reality, this interpersonal dynamic is undergirding the, the prayer that we'll find in our teaching text, the prayer of, of Jesus, it's this prayer of anguish, what we will call the prayer of the forsaken. And so if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 15. I'll also just uh, in advance, we'll, we'll go over to Psalm 22, but we'll get to that in a moment. We'll pick up in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, and we'll be in another one of these vexing moments with Jesus. You know, last week we sat in the tension of, of what is called the Gethsemane prayer, and this is a place where we saw how weakness can indeed be transformed into a place of union with God, which is kind of upside down. Generally, in, in our, I guess, economy of how we do relationships, weakness is measured as weakness. Like there's no upside to weakness. And yet in the kingdom of God, weakness is a place where we actually become dependent on the strength of the living God. And his strength is actually brought to completion or it's perfected in that place. So we saw in the Gethsemane prayer that weakness is transformed into a place of, of union. And today it's another one of those vexing prayers of Jesus, the prayer of the forsaken. And so if you're able and, and wherever you're standing, I know some of you just got comfy, but out of honor for God's word, um, not as just a perfunctory action, but would you stand as we read uh, God's word? This is, this is something that I, I think is helpful for us as we're saying we want to honor God with our bodies. And so this is not a response to me. This is a response to the living God. So this is Mark chapter 15, verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
35, when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And so someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And as though that person is being interrupted by the one who just cried out, no, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, this Roman military official who's carrying out this execution of Jesus, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So when Jesus is hanging on a Roman execution rack, which is what we would call a cross, when he's hanging there, the words that fill his heart and then spill out of his mouth, they're neither curse nor condemnation. Instead, Jesus cries out in this holy complaint. And I think if, um, if I like reflect on my teenage years, if I knew that there was a category for holy complaints, this one's for you, Daniel, holy complaints. Next time you're battling with your, this is a holy complaint. That's good. Right there, Daniel. Take that one. But I had, no ca- like I had no category for this because when Jesus cries out, it's not condemnation, it's not curse, it's a holy complaint. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, when Jesus is enveloped in this moment of anguish, the prayer that kind of pours forth is this prayer of lament, even this prayer of protest. And if you've spent any time in the Psalms, you, you have come across prayers of lament, but you may not have known what you were reading through, or if you were praying those prayers, you may have not known that you were praying, in some cases, the prayer of the forsaken, which is in Psalm 22. See, in the Bible, a, a lament is simply a cry grounded in trust. My guess is, is that many of us have lamented and many of us have complained thinking we're lamenting. And maybe some of us have complained, but it's actually a lament, a cry grounded in trust. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, that is what he's doing. He cries out. I love how Richard Foster, who kind of, he helps to pastor a number of people toward a way of thinking about the, the, the lament psalms. And he's done the same with me. He says this, lament psalms teach us to pray our inner conflicts and contradictions. Lament psalms allow us to shout out our forsakenness in the dark cavern of abandonment and then hear the echo return. So this is not like a come to church and I feel great kind of a moment, is it? Um, To shout out in the dark cavern of abandonment and to hear the echo return. I think at like a, a, a human kind of intuitive level, we get what this is like. The moments where maybe for you, it looks like screaming into a pillow. You see, but, but for the follower of Jesus, we don't just have to direct our cries to a pillow. We can actually give them a trajectory that then allows when they return to be some place of, of comfort. And, and even though that may be intuitive and perhaps we've done it, it doesn't make it any easier, does it? <laughs> but because Jesus is the one praying this and in this series we're asking Jesus to teach us to pray, we're just gonna linger with these words of Jesus, the prayer of the forsaken. 
And one thing that really struck me as I was, I was working through this is that Jesus doesn't say that the, when he's hanging on the cross, he doesn't say, you know, this feels dim, but I know God is with me. He doesn't rationalize the moment. He doesn't say, this is a really hard moment, but I imagine that others have had it worse on the cross. No, for Jesus, anguish is less a thing to get around and more of a thing to pray through. It's a reality to pray through. See, lament doesn't deny our feelings. It doesn't abandon God. Actually, lament is how we wrestle with God in faith. And so if you've ever lamented, that is the place. It's, I, I think, even in vogue to deconstruct away from God, to, to take the things that we don't really care for about God and push them to the side. But the reality is, is that's, I think, less of an expression of faith than it is to lament and wrestle and offer these holy complaints. And so just to kind of see and feel the contours of the interior logic of a complaint, we're just going to go right to the source, Psalm 22. And so if you're in Mark, you just flip back to the left, you'll find your way kind of midway through your Bible or just tap your way over Psalm 22. And what you'll see above our verse one is this little line, for the director of music to the tune of the doe of the dawn. Do any of you know the tune to doe of the dawn? Yeah, nobody does. That's called Bible humor. That was good, right? Yeah, we like that. Yeah, we don't really know. And yet, what, what does this tell us? Well, if this is a, for the choir director, that's, that makes a little bit of sense to us. This is a corporate song. This means that there was a group of people who could actually embrace a song of lament. It's not happy, clappy Jesus time. It's like deep sorrow and all of the people join in in this moment. It's as though David, the psalmist, his anguish becomes a song for the people after him, even Jesus and perhaps you and me. So verse one, we're just gonna kind of work our way through line by line, pausing as we go along to reflect. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Essentially, if, if you've ever felt this confusion, if God's ever felt more absent than he has present, these words are for you. And, and just notice that this is not like, a, um, like complaints that you'll see on Twitter where it's anonymous and this is my God. And then the frustration comes, my God, why are you so far from, well, what is this? I find no rest, there's no answer, you've forsaken me. Verse three Notice the shift, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the, you are the one Israel praises. These are the people of God. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted in you, delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. See, right here, the, the, the psalmist is appealing to the reality of God, the person of God through his own family experience. See, when David recalls that the people called out and, and God answered, this would activate in their imagination a story. Is there a story that might come to mind of, of the people of God calling out and God answering? If you've seen the Disney film, The Prince of Egypt, you know the story. 
or if you've grown up around the Bible, th- this, is the, this, this is the cry of the people of Israel as they're under the oppressive forces of Egypt, the, the empire of their day. They cry out and God hears them and he sends Moses. And, and it's like the, the psalmist, David is like, when, when God's people call out, what does he do? He responds. So where are you? He's lamenting God's absence, which is made all the worse because apparently God is the type of God who answers the cries of his people. But in this moment, he is more absent than he is present. Where, where is his deliverance? Where is his rescue? Where is his saving? And apparently from that place, verse six, this is what you feel like. I am a worm and not a man, scored by everyone, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. It's this, this language of mockery, like, okay, yeah, he trusts in the Lord. Let, let the Lord, let Yahweh rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Have you ever noticed that in your moments of isolation that like, or even, even when like the, like the despair of depression sets in, you don't even want to get out of your bed. Have you ever um, kind of like woken up to yourself in the mirror and God, whoa, like that place of just, I can't, what, you are a worm and not a person is what you feel. Because that place of loneliness, it, like it breaks down your humanity. And yet in this moment, there's no denying his condition. He's just naming his reality, his world before God. And no, this is not like a good therapeutic process. The, the psalmist is not like thinking, okay, I just need to get these things out to a therapist. This is about disclosing our pain to God as though he actually wants to hear. And just see how the psalmist doesn't start. He goes deeper in verse nine. Yet you brought me out of the womb. See how personal that is, how human it is, how tactile it is. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help. See, lament may feel like this peculiar thing for us. I think especially in church contexts where lament is pushed to the side or if you, if you visit it, it's maybe around Easter toward Good Friday, but then the cross is, and it's like we just, we blink and it's gone. But what if your whole season right now is a season of lament? What do you, what do, you do with that? Where's Jesus in the midst of that? Well, perhaps he's right here alongside you. I think in these few verses, they're pretty instructive because God, like the God of the cosmos is described as a midwife. This, this interpersonal element where Yahweh, the creator God, has taken David from his mother's womb, placed at this place of nourishment and refreshment and restoration. It's like, you have known me this whole time. You've always cared for me. And the question underneath that is, where are you now? We have permission we actually have the language right here to say, where are you? And if this feels uncomfortable, you're keeping track. Verse 12, many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. These are like the fierce animals of their day that are uncontrollable. Those are the ones that are there. David says, I'm poured out like water. All, the bo- all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. It's this, this place of, of fear, that turn of expression, melted within me, turned to wax is this fear. My mouth, 15, is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue 
sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. That picture there is as though your face is being like, it's just on the ground, a barren desert all around you and you, you can't, you have no moisture in your mouth. Your tongue sticks. It is just utter exhaustion. Dogs surround me. These aren't like the cute dogs that you see being walked around. Um, dogs run around in packs. They're scavengers. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me and they pierce my hands and feet. Some of your translations will say, they hack off my hands and feet. All my bones are on display, just emaciated. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them. They cast lots for my garment. It's as though in, this, in his despair, the people around him are actually seeking their own advantage. It's like, okay, D David is down. Let us, let's do our thing now. And then it shifts. Notice this shift. It's, it's quite odd. But this is the direction of the psalm. But you, Yahweh, you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. 18 verses of just explaining the reality of his condition and then three times, deliver, rescue, save. See, I think prayers of lament do what we desperately need. They name what is wrong. So it's really easy to not know what's wrong because Netflix has all the shows. And now there's 84 streaming services that you never even, if it doesn't have what you like on the Netflix, then you go to Hulu or Disney or whatever. And, and do you notice, do you notice how it just sucks you in? Do you remember, this makes me feel old, which is kind of funny because Netflix is not that old, but do you remember when you had to self-select the next show? And then, and then they had it where there was a countdown and it would like let you know now it's just a little bar and it's so tiny and it just, oh, it's already playing. I guess I'm here for the next four hours. And it's like your couch is sucking you in and in turn, like what's wrong with my world? I've got a cocktail and Netflix or a glass of what, what, you know, whatever your thing is. But, but if a lament names what's wrong, then I would avoid a lament like a plague. But when we encounter uncontrollable circumstances, things that are literally happening to us or around us that we cannot control, it's as though our inner world can be cast into chaos. And from that place, we can choose to, to calm the chaos temporarily, or like the psalmist, we can cast our cares on the Lord. And the God who ordered chaos from the beginning can participate with us to order that chaos as well. There's something beautiful going on in this psalm. Because God actually cares about the chaos of our hearts. See, the truth is, is that we are not designed to be able to handle the alienation, the isolation, the pain, the rejection, the confusion. If I say this another way, the world is not how it's supposed to be. Have any of you felt that maybe the past 18 months or so? Just a little bit? No, it's as though the world is not how it's supposed to be, that we're not in the condition that we're designed for, that it's all messed up. It can feel as though God is a long way off, that he is absent and that we're stuck in this miserable, godless existence. And it hurts 
Laments help us say that it hurts, and it hurts like hell because it is a sort of hell. But the beauty of Jesus is that Jesus actually came. God put on a body in Jesus of Nazareth, born as a baby to grow in knowledge and wisdom and stature. And then he comes, and what we see is that Jesus actually came to get the hell out of you and me, to get the hell out of here so that heaven could invade earth. And so he, when he cries out with this lament on the cross, he's naming the reality that we're all in because he's in it too. See, what this psalm and Jesus taking the psalmist's words on his lips that teaches us that God actually knows the stuff. He knows that the world is not how it should be. And, and maybe this doesn't agree with your theology, and, and it, like, but what if the way that things were is not God's will? What if he wasn't instructing this reality, but there were these the, the strange invaders of sin and death who like a sickness in our bodies were wreaking havoc and chaos. And through Jesus, he was bringing order that to allow the chaos to consume him so that in him sin and death itself could finally die. And then there's a shift because in verse 22, something happens that's kind of unexpected in keeping with the first 18 verses. And I'll just read straight through this. See if you catch what's going on here. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. Sound a little different already? 23, you who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praises in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Some uh, scholars will hold this. It's like, it's like the psalmist is making a toast, like bottoms up, like may your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the, to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And this is where we say, amen. He has done it. So the so sudden turn happens. What what happened? <laughs> like, what's going on? Go and look back at verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Do you remember the request? Rescue, deliver, save. Verse 22 tells us a story that, what, that, that the rescue came that the deliverance took place, that the saving is actually being witnessed. We are witnessing the reflection on the saving. But, and we see it here and it pours out. The poor will eat and be satisfied. The whole earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. The nations will come and celebrate. 
See, what's curious is that many lament psalms will actually end this way. They'll end with shouts of joy and acclaim to God as the one who delivers them from their mourning and turns it into joy. But this is not always the case, is it? For some of us, our life will not end in joy. For some of us, we will not get a verse 22. It's kind of heavy, huh? Um, Jesus got the first line of the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know sometimes the authors of the New Testament and the Old Testament alike will put these little references so that in your imagination, the whole thing, like a hyperlink, it just kind of populates the whole psalm into your mind. So Jesus is saying these first words of Psalm 22, and it's as though, okay, this is, this is what the rest is coming. I know joy is coming, but for Jesus, what happens on the cross? Well, Jesus dies on the cross. He never gets the celebration. And that's not the end because the cross is a place where lament lives and joy is opened up. So I think it actually is appropriate to think, okay, where does Psalm 22 go? Because ours is not a story of hopelessness. There's actually a deep well of hope. See, if Jesus came just to defeat sin, Satan, and death in his body so that it goes no further, what's next? Well, the the cross gives way to death. And what does death in the story of Jesus give way to? Resurrection life. But there is no resurrection apart from the death, and there is no death apart from the cross. And now in the wake of resurrection, the New Testament will say that Jesus leads his saints in triumphal procession over the great enemies of our soul, sin, Satan, and death. And this triumphal procession, this is a Roman military term. This is kind of um, like punk rock of Jesus because what, what it's depicting is that Jesus is the one who's conquered the true enemies and is in turn leading us who have victory in his name to their shame. Which means that if you felt this place of shame in your body, you get to say with Jesus both, why have you forsaken me? And you get to look to joy. In a moment, this is what we're actually gonna do. We're going to look in and reflect on where God is in a word of song. We're going to remember his goodness in the body and blood, and we're going to continue then to sing in joy. Because on the cross, a reality happened. Rescue really did take place. This isn't just a nice story that we read about in the Psalms. Rescue really has come. Deliverance has come. There's some who will talk about what Jesus is doing as the new exodus, A new people have cried out for God's deliverance. It doesn't just extend to Israel, it moves through Israel to the nations that this thing really is happening. Why else are we here if not to say that deliverance is a reality we can step into, that we are the ones who are saved, are being saved, and will ultimately be saved? If we're a little bit more Pentecostal or charismatic, we'd be saying amen and hallelujah right here because this is the reality that we live in. Though we are dying, biologically, this is all true for us. We are all dying right now. We are also coming more alive in Christ. Come on. This is the thing. 
This is why we come to this place and we awkwardly put kids into like a little pen and we come and we teach them who Jesus is and we come and we sit on stairs and we, this is what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves what the true thing is, the thing beneath the thing. Because rescue has come and maybe that's what you need to hear today is you actually are a rescued one. Maybe you need to hear that deliverance has come and though your circumstances are one that are worthy of lament, you will have a community who can join you in that lament and can point toward the ultimate saving that we get to have. I love what the author of Hebrews says, says this, or she, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Do you know, have you ever met some people for whom it's just like natural for them to like go get it? And you're like, how are you doing what you're doing? How is it that, I bet they've set something before them. I bet there's a thing that has been set before them that is just intuitive to move after. For Jesus, it is the joy set before him. What is it for you? See, if the cross is a lament that gives way to our joy, I think we get to do a couple things right now. I'm gonna invite you to stand and just the, the, we're gonna be led into worship through song here in a moment. But we actually get to cry out we get to lament and we also get to say some things that are true. We get to say that God is who he's always been. And so my invitation to you, the invitation I'm trying to receive myself is the one that we humble ourselves and we come to God as we are, not as we ought to be. So we're gonna sing I'll come and I'll lead us in taking the bread and the cup and we'll sing some more. But don't feel like this doesn't have to be a contrived thing where you muster up something that's not there. So let me pray and then let us continue to worship through song. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we honor your name. You are one. And with all that is in us, we, we hold the tension with your love and your care. We just ask, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you comfort or come and do in us the things that we try to do in our own efforts, that we turn aside to distraction? We uh, think our despair is a place where we need to, to like medicate that. And we just ask that you and your healing presence would, would minister, would serve, would build us up. And that as we respond as a body that that there would actually be a, a thing that happens among us called the unity of your people, that we would remember that you lead us in triumphal procession over the thing, that there is no longer shame or condemnation in your name, Jesus, but we are those who are rescued and delivered and saved. So let the saved of God worship our God.